Have you ever taken a selfie before? Ever? The girl, the new girls didn't even respond to that. They're just like, they, they just curled in on themselves in shame as I asked that question. Did you know that it has been scientifically proven that selfies make you look ugly? Did you know this? Does this make a lot of sense? This makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's not just when AJ body slams you that it looks bad. It's the selfies, man. It's just, it could be any time. Yeah. So I found out today that selfies scientifically look worse than normal. It's because uh, something about the the way that the camera focuses, it's like too fisheye. You know the fisheye lens where it's like really close up to you? So apparently what it does is when you take a selfie, uh, because it's so close to you and because it's such a wide angle lens and you're so close, it will take whatever's in the middle of your face, which maybe everybody take your hand and touch the middle of your face. What's in the middle of your face? Your nose. It takes that, makes it bigger, and then just kind of bends everything around your nose, Okay. Usually, usually, that makes you look not so much like you. Because like, if you looked at yourself in the mirror, that's, that's what the, the study was all about. If you look at yourself in the mirror, you can say, oh, that looks normal. That looks like me. But then when you see yourself, it's like, that doesn't really look like me. And if you take some cameras, it can be so far out that your face, instead of like your nose being big <laughs> and everything bending around your nose, like then it kind of feels like your ears kind of move forward. It's super trippy. I watched this video all about it. You got to look it up. It's super weird. But what it made me think of, it's like you see yourself in the mirror every day, which is kind of similar to how some people see you, but we care a lot about how people look at us, right? That's why you spent a lot of time this morning looking at yourself in the mirror and maybe wearing some clothes and maybe making some decisions. Others of you did not make any decisions about your clothing. That's fine, right? We've got all, yep, we got to have those people, right? But like a lot of you made decisions and you thought about how you'd be perceived. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And actually, in some ways, it's a good thing because, um, let me just throw this out there, um, if you did not care at all how anyone else saw you or perceived you, uh, you'd probably not take a shower. You probably would smell pretty bad. You'd pro- you probably wouldn't take very much care of yourself. So it's good to an extent that you kind of are familiar with how people look at you. But, you know, a lot of people can look at you, and they might have different opinions of you, not just how you look, obviously. There's more than that. People look at you, and they can see your personality, not on the outside, but when they interact with you. They, they know who you are by observing you and looking at you. And while it's pretty important how other people look at you, the most important person who looks and sees who you are is not me. It's not your person sitting next to you. It's, it's God. How does God see you, right? When you take a selfie, you see yourself in a certain way. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you see yourself in a little different way. But the question is, ultimately, how does God see you? Think this through. When God looks and he sees you, and he knows your thoughts, and he knows your heart, not just looking at the outside. God's word says that he also looks at the inside. What does he see? What does God see when he looks at you? That's a very important question to ask, and perhaps even more important to answer, which in this series in the Psalms, we've been asking questions because these Psalms ask questions. And there's a question in the Psalm we're going to look at tonight that basically goes like this. Um, When God looks down at everybody, what does he see? When he looks at you, what does he see? Are you a person that's looking for him or not? And this psalm is going to give some answers that might be surprising to some of you. So please grab a Bible. Look at Psalm chapter 53. And what we're going to talk about tonight is what God sees when he looks at you. 
What God sees, not only when he looks at you, but when he looks at everybody. God actually expresses that he's got an opinion about what he sees. Just like we can all give opinions about the kind of clothes we like, um, you know, how good you look when you look in the mirror. We all got opinions about that. God has an opinion when he looks at us. Not just our outside, of course, but obviously, more importantly, at our heart. Now, this psalm is interesting because there was a psalm that we skipped before when we were studying at the beginning. We studied Psalm 13, and then we skipped Psalm 14 and went straight to Psalm 15, okay? This psalm right here, Psalm 53, is really almost a word-for-word repeat of Psalm 14. Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are almost identical. There's only a few things that are different about them. So it's interesting. The reason we skipped it is because we're going to cover it later, and here we are. But both of these psalms are written by David. It says that in the, in the title here, and it says that it's to the choir master according to this, this instrument we don't even know much about, but it seems like this is some instrument here. It's a masculine of David. It's one of those teaching psalms that David is going to say. It's interesting that this is the second time he says it. Some people have looked at this and said, well, because it's the second time he said it, some people have said that maybe he wrote the beginning one, at the, uh, the Psalm 14, at the beginning of his life, and now he writes Psalm 53 near the end of his life, because if you look around, Psalm 54 talks about how David was hiding um, from the Ziphites, and then Psalm 52 says um, it was when he encountered this guy named Doeg, the Edomite, which those were two scenes that if you remember from David's life, he was on the run. There were people that were treating him bad. It felt like for him, everyone is against me. That's how it felt. Okay? And that's, I think, the context in which we find this psalm. David writes to say, what does God see when he looks at people? It's not a great picture that he paints here. Look at what it says in Psalm 53, verse 1. It says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, a lot of people look at that and say, well, that says that people who don't believe in God are foolish. Um, not exactly what it says, although I think that makes sense with what the rest of the Bible says. This says that there's a type of person who says something to themselves, maybe not out loud, but they try to make their conscience feel better by saying something. There's no God. God doesn't care about what I've done. This person who acts like God is not there doesn't say he doesn't think God is there. He says to himself, oh, God's not going to care about this. God's not going to judge this. This person, what does it say they do next? It says they are corrupt. They are sinful. They're rotten to the core. It says they do abominable iniquity. So now they not only are bad on the inside, now they're expressing that badness all out on everybody else. They're doing sinful things. There is none who does good. You might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's got to be some good people. Look at verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand and who seek after God. This is what I was talking about, where this psalm says God looks and he says, okay, these people who are out here, what do I see? Now he says, do, does he see anyone who says, I want to live for God all, 100%. I want to serve God. Does he see anyone who without his help comes to him and says, I want to serve God? Look what he says. Verse three, they have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. So it's not just there's some bad people and a whole sea of good people, which is, by the way, how most people view the world. Most people view the world as mostly made up of good people with some rotten apples in the bunch. That's how most people see the world. This is a description of how God sees the world. Look what he says. He says he looks down and he doesn't see a single good person. I know that's kind of shocking, 
But that's how the Bible presents humans, that there's not a single good one. There's only one who had not even come on the scene in Psalm 53. Jesus is the only perfect one, but he's not even in the scene at this point. There's no perfect humans. Interesting. Verse number four. He says, have those who work evil, so these evildoers, have they no knowledge? It's like a question. Do they not understand that God's there? Or do they know God's there and they're just acting like God's not there? It's an interesting question. It says, these people who eat up my people as they eat bread. What does that mean? Does that mean physically like cannibals here? I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think whenever the Bible talks about people eating each other up, what it's really referring to is they're taking advantage of other people so much so that they are so selfish that they don't care at all how their actions affect someone else. And the way this was seen throughout the minor prophets, if you know books like Amos and Micah, where it says my people, they're eating up my people like loaves of bread. The idea was there were these people who were rich and wealthy and had a lot of stuff that were utilizing, exploiting people who were poor, people who didn't have as much. They were eating up the people is the, the imagery here. The idea is someone who is so selfish, they don't care at all how they affect other people at all. They'll be as mean as they want. They'll take whatever they want. They'll steal whatever they want. They'll do whatever they want. And they're eating people up because of it. That's the description of these people. Look what it says. It says, have they no knowledge, those who work evil, people who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. Now, call upon God is a phrase that's used a lot in the Psalms. Basically, I think the idea there is people who are seeking God saying, I want to please you, God. I want to serve you. The idea is these people don't want to serve God. They're not seeking God. They're being really selfish, and they're taking advantage of all the people in their life. Question is, when God looks down, what does he see from you, right? Because this is a pretty bad scene, pretty bad description of humans right here, right? Well, this is what God sees. Look at verse number five. It says, they are there. It says, there they are in great terror. These people are super anxious. Now, what are they anxious about? Is there something in their life that can explain their anxiety? Or do they have just this crazy, burdening anxiety and they have no idea why? It says, where there is no terror. It's like God is pressing on these people. He's making them anxious and scared and worried. And really, there's nothing to be scared of in the sense that there, there's no lying around the corner. There's no one stealing their stuff. But they're so worried that this worry and sin are connected. Interesting. It says, next, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. Talking about these, um, these people of God. What does it mean to scatter the bones? Well, it seems like that idea is, it's like God takes all the strength. Imagine a tent, okay? What happens if you take a tent and you take out all the pegs and all the structures and all the frame, the bones? What happens to that tent? Falls down, right? Can't stand. The idea is, it's like God takes the bones of people, the structure, the strength of people, and it's like, figuratively speaking, they're scattered everywhere. Like you can't build a good tent if you take out the skeleton and the bones of it. That's the idea. God takes all of it and just throws a piece there, throws a piece there. The idea is they have no security and no safety because they are constantly sinning. He says this next, for you, God, put them to shame for God has rejected them. Who's God rejectable? These people who act like he's not there. These people who won't turn from their sin. These people who stay corrupt. These people who refuse to seek God. It's all really bad and scary and kind of a hard psalm here, but look at verse 6. David says, he starts talking to God now. He says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That word that's used figuratively to talk about where God dwells. Like, God, can you just bring from heaven salvation? Please save people. 
It says, when God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The idea is once God does some saving work, all the people who are saved, they better give God a lot of praise. We got to praise God because we are in a bad situation here. Because when I look around, I see people doing evil things. When I look at myself, I see an evil heart. And when God looks at it, what does he see? He sees no one does good. No, not even one. So what does God see when he sees us? He sees people. I know this is a scary thing, but he sees people who are very, very sinful. He sees people who are far from him. He sees people who do not seek him. I know that kind of sounds counterintuitive, but the idea is no one's seeking God on their own. If God does not draw you to seek him, you won't seek him. Why do people in the world not seek God? Well, they don't seek God because that's what people do. Because of their sin, they seek sin. They don't seek God. You can't really try to do both at the same time. God sees us. What does he see? He sees sin. The thing I want you to understand tonight is that um, you are a part of this group. I am a part of this group of sinful people. Sometimes you don't see yourself that way, but you need to see yourself as a part of that sinful group of people because we are. And further, I don't want you to just stay there. I want you to be like David in Psalm 53, verse 6, the last verse here, where he turns his attention to God and says, God, will you just please bring salvation? And notice, he's looking forward to the salvation God's going to bring from sin. But what do we do? We look back on what God did to solve the sin problem. He's looking forward to Jesus. But as we deal with the idea of sin, we look back and say, look what Jesus did. We come at it from a little bit different perspective than David did here. But we can agree on some things to say, look, we are sinful. We are separated from God. We wouldn't seek God on our own. And when God sees us, he sees a lot of sin. But the good news is God brings salvation through Jesus. This first verse talks about how God is there, but a foolish person acts like he's not there. You might not claim to be an atheist, right? You might not say, oh, I, I don't believe in the existence of God. Maybe you do. Maybe you're a person who says, I, I'm not sure God exists. Okay. Um, this verse is not just talking about atheists. What does it say? The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Another way of putting that is a foolish person, a person who's unwise, when they do what's sinful, they tell themselves in their heart, that wasn't so bad. Well, God, God won't be mad about that. God won't see that. God's not going to, I mean, he, he will not say anything bad to me. He won't, he won't even deal with it. It's like blocking out the truth, trying to make your conscience feel better. The foolish person does that. Point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. Don't live like God isn't there. Don't live like God isn't there. See, what I'm asking is more than just say, I believe in God. Right? Because that's not really what this verse is talking about. Although if you are a person who doesn't believe in God, just remember what this text says. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. Only a foolish person would say, God is not there. He did not exist. And if you need proof, if you need evidence, the Bible talks about how the world is evidence. You are evidence. Romans 1 talks about how God has made known his power, his creativity, his knowledge, all that stuff through the things that he has made so that each and every one of us is without excuse. None of us can say, oh, I didn't know God was there. Oh, I didn't know that I was a sinner. Oh, I didn't know I did wrong. This goes as far as to say even the people who've never heard about God, even the people who've never heard about Jesus, what does it say about them? None does good. We're all sinful. 
even if you had never gone to church, even, even if you did not know what sin was, technically, that's what the book of Romans chapter 2 talks about. Even if you didn't know technically what the law of God said, and Romans 1 talks about this too, if you didn't even know the terms for it, you would still know something of your own sinfulness, and you would still be in sin, even if you didn't know clearly the rules. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. It's interesting, there's a, a trend that people are doing where they set up security cameras on their businesses and they don't actually work. They just set them up. Okay, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the reason they do that is if someone who's trying to rob a place sees six places and four of them have security cameras, they're always going to go for the two that don't have security cameras. Reality is they don't know that they're not plugged in. So some people, what they're doing is they're just setting up fake cameras outside their stores so they won't get robbed. It's actually kind of smart. But it's interesting because you know what that shows, right? When we think we're not being watched, we'll do all kinds of things that we wouldn't do if we knew we were being watched, right? If I said to you, tomorrow, you can do anything you want, no matter what, no consequences, what would you do, right? The way you answer that question will tell you something about your heart. And I I just think the way that you would answer that question would probably show I've got a sinful heart, right? If you could do anything, be anywhere, do like anything, see anything, go anyplace, experience anything, and there would be no consequences and nobody would know, what would you do, right? I, I, I'm just guessing for 99.9, of us, some of what would be included in that would not be good. Why? Well, because we're sinful people. God looks, and he doesn't just see the externals. He also sees the internals. Two verses I want you to write down here. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It's one you probably know. And then Psalm 36, 1 to 4. I'll talk about Proverbs 1, 7 right now. It says, the fear of the Lord, the understanding that God is there and that God will judge, that is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be a wise person? You want to be a godly person? Where does it start? It starts with you saying, God is there, God is watching. Proverbs 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 7. The next one, Psalm 36, 1 to 4. Psalm 36, 1 to 4. says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Like, what's going on at the depths of a person's heart? Transgression. Where can I cross over the line? Oh, I wish I could do that. Well, I can't do that because that person's watching. I, c- I couldn't go there. I couldn't do this thing. I couldn't watch this because they're all, they're all watching. I, I, I couldn't do that. But if I could, I would. That's what Psalm 36 1 says. It says this, there is no fear of God before his eyes, the person who's doing evil. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. Flattery is saying something nice that's a lie, right? So if you said to someone, hey, that's like the prettiest dress I've ever seen. And then you turn around to your friends and say, oh, I hate that dress. You've just flattered someone. You've just told a lie. Even though it sounded nice, you've just told a lie, right? That's flattery. What this says is this evil person flatters himself. So he tells a lie to himself to make himself feel better. What does he say? He says, he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated, right? Because if people knew, they would look at that and say, "That's, that's not good. If my small group knew, if my parents knew, well, if they knew, then that wouldn't be good. This person says to themselves, no one's ever going to find out. Verse 3 says, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. 
So not only does this person cause trouble with their mouth, they also lie. They're deceptive. They deceive others. They deceive themselves. It says, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. This person who's committed himself to, I'm just going to do whatever I want. He plots trouble while on his bed. So like even before he's started the day, he's already thinking about the sin that he can do. And even when the nighttime has come and it's time for him to go to bed and it's time for him to shut off his mind, this person's saying, oh, what evil things can I do? Even on your bed. It says he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Okay? Those are two pictures. Proverbs 1, 7 is the picture of the person who starts down that path of wisdom. Saying, I'm going to fear God. I'm going to act like God's there. I'm going to live my life in such a way that I know God sees all, knows all, hears all. That's the wise person. But then this other person, Psalm 36, 1 to 4, is the person who's like, I don't care. I'm going to live how I want to live. I'm going to sin how I'm going to sin. The problem is God is watching for that person. Proverbs 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 3. Proverbs 15, 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. God's security camera is everywhere. Sees all, knows all, hears all. It's everywhere. For the evil people, the good people, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how bad you are, God's watching, is what it says. Hebrews 4, 13, that famous verse after the, the edge passage, talks about how no creature is hidden from his sight. You can't run away from God. You can't say, I'm going to do this thing over here, but God won't see, God won't know. That's not how this universe works. God did not set it up that way. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's like there's no hiding. God knows all. God sees all. God hears all. So the warning for us is please don't act like God's not there. Some of you think, oh, I believe in God, and you'll say that, and we'll talk about that, and you'll sit in small groups, and you'll discuss things about God, but then right when it's over, boom, done, out of your mind, you won't consider God until a couple days from now. Right? Some of us live that way. We act like God's not there. Right? Some people have looked at this and said, that's, that's what it means to be a practical atheist, right? You might not be a theoretical atheist, you might be a practical atheist. Right? Pastors and preachers have been looking at this text saying that for centuries. I found a commentary from the 1600s that talked about practical atheists, right? People who live their life like atheists because they live their life like God's not there. And that's what this is talking about. So don't live like God's not there. Gave you four verses there to prove it. Back in our passage, verse 2, Psalm 53, 2 says, God looks down, God sees. And what does God see? It's like a hopeful tone. It's like, okay. David's like, okay, God's looking. It's like he peers over, and what does he see? Is there anybody who does good? Is there anybody who's seeking God? Is there any? He says, no, the problem is every last one of us has said, I am going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to sin. No one does good. No, not even one. Look at verse 3. They've all fallen away. Together, they have all become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. Or not even you, if you think you're the good person in your group. Not even you if you think, yeah, you read the DBR more than that person. Not even you. You're still bad too. I'm still bad too. That's what God's word says over and over again. Point number two, I want you to admit that you're not a good person, quote unquote. Admit you're not a good person. When people say, I have to realize I'm a sinner. Some people think that you can hold that belief and also hold the belief that you're a good person, right? 
You'll talk to people and say, are you a good person? Yes, I'm a good person. Well, are you a sinner? Yeah, well, everyone's a sinner. It's like, okay, well, are you bad or are you good? Oh, well, I'm good. Well, are you bad though? Yeah, I'm bad. Well, everyone's bad. It's like, well, okay, <laughs> maybe you didn't think about that before, but you cannot be a good person and a bad person all at the same time. I know everyone's like, oh, it's just different shades of that. Well, in an ultimate sense is what we're talking about here. Obviously, I believe that some people are better than others. Right? I would not believe that some people teach like, no, that nobody is, everyone's equally bad. That's, that's not what this is teaching. Okay? I think David is not as bad as Doeg the Edomite. Okay? <laughs> Doeg the Edomite, he's a guy who, um, what happened early on in David's life is he was running away from Saul. A group of priests, like 70 or 80 priests, they helped David. They gave him food. They gave him shelter. Um, Saul's men went to go find David. They go to this city with all these priests there who helped David and his men. And they ask him, hey, did you help David when he was running away from the king? And they say, yeah, we did. I mean, he's the guy who defeated Goliath. I mean, he's famous. Well, of course we helped him. And Saul said to his men, kill every last one of those priests. Kill them all. And said the priests were so scared to do that because like, we're not going to go kill the pastors. It's like the cops going in and say, okay, kill all the pastors. It's like, uh, the cops didn't want to do that, right? They're like, we're not doing that. But then this one evil dude showed up. His name is Doeg. I'll kill all them. He walks in and it says he slaughtered with one sword, 70 men who sat there and were killed by this guy, right? Well, that's pretty bad, right? David's a little bit better than that guy. Yes. So obviously I believe that this text is not saying that we're all equally bad, but it's true of all of us that we are all in the category of sinner. That's what the Bible is very clear about. This passage is actually quoted in the New Testament you actually might think of this when you hear this, no, not, no one's good, no, not even one. You're thinking, oh, that's from uh, Romans 3, right? That is from Romans 3. Guess what Paul's quoting when he writes that in Romans 3, verse 10? He's quoting Psalm 53. That's what he's quoting. He quotes three verses here. He rarely, in the book of Romans, quotes an extended period of text. He usually takes snippets of different books. No, this time he just takes a section out of this book. He says, no one's good, no, not even one. He quotes these verses. When it says God looks down, people have noted that there are times in the Old Testament where God is described as like looking down. Sometimes we think of God that way. Obviously, God sees all. It's not like he has to, you know, look over, you know, the pulpit, so to speak, to see what's underneath. That's not how God's perception works. But it is a good picture. In Genesis chapter 6, you know Genesis 6 is the passage where the flood happens, right? Well, in that passage, twice, Moses, when he writes about this, God inspires Moses to say this. This is Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whoa, <laughs> that's really bad. Later on in that passage, Genesis 6, 12, Genesis 6, 12 says, and God saw the earth, and behold, which means look. It's like God saw, and check this out, everybody. That's what behold means. It was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The idea is like when God looks, what does he see? He sees sin. Romans 3 says no one's good, not even one. I said Romans 3, 10 to 12. That's where this is quoted. But the punchline there, you can write this down. Romans 3, verses 20 to 23. This is like the, the punchline of this. Paul continues after saying, hey, guys, look, it's not just the people who don't have the Bible. That's what Romans 1 is about. It's like, hey, the people who don't have the Bible 
who grew up without God, like, yeah, they're bad, obviously. But then Romans 2 is like, well, actually, also the people who had the law, the Jewish people, they're pretty bad too. And then Romans 3 quotes, he says, look, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, whether you grew up in the church or whether you did not know anything about God. The modern day equivalent of that is to say, hey, it's not just the kids who don't know the Bible who are bad. It's also the church kids. The church kids are bad too. That's what he's trying to say. And then he gets to the end of that passage, Romans 3.20. He says, for by works of the law, by doing what the Bible says, no human being will ever be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Why? Because we're all sinners. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has come apart from the law. So someone came, lived a righteous life, and there's a way for us to get that without keeping the law, right? Because we all broken the law. It says, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, all who trust in him. For there is no distinction. And then the famous verse, the one you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned, past tense, and all present tense fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's messed up in the past. And guess what? In the present, we don't, we don't measure up either. So it's not like we can say, oh yeah, I was a sinner back then, but now I'm good. Like, no, we've, we've all done what's wrong. And we continue to not measure up to God's standard. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 are more Old Testament references about this, but um, it talks about our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful. This is God talking. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't even understand our own hearts. Then it says, I, the Lord, I search the heart and I test the mind, which is what point number one was all about, that God sees, is to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God sees it. There's a famous old pastor who wrote about this and what he said about this passage was so good. Um, he says that you have a heart that would kill God if you could. It's like, whoa, really? Well, that's what this idea is. You can say, well, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't kill God. How would I kill God? And he makes the point, I loved it. He said, um, what happened when God took on flesh? Did everyone say, yes, finally, it's, it's, it's the one we've been looking for. What happened when Jesus came on the scene? Right? They killed him. Like, Sinful people have a really hard time getting along with righteous people because it makes you feel bad, right? It's really hard to hang out with somebody who's better than you at everything. That's a hard thing for your pride. It's a hard thing for my pride. The idea is we, we wouldn't, if we had the ability to harm God, the crazy thing is um, probably would. We would want the standard to be gone. Isaiah 65, we studied that passage a couple months ago when we were studying Isaiah, but it talks about the same exact thing. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready for people to come approach me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation who was not called by my name. He says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. When we study this, remember the context was he's talking about these Israelites who just wouldn't follow God. It's like they heard, the, they heard the truth, they heard the truth, but God says, hey guys, follow me, follow me, obey, obey. Oh, no, it's not happening again. Another generation, another generation, right? Because the reality is sin is that 
bad, and it has infected all of us. We're all sinners. God says, when he looks, does he find any seekers? Is anyone seeking him? He says, no, not on our own. You might say, wait a minute, what, what, if, what if I am someone who's seeking God? If you're someone who is truly seeking God, well, then guess what? God has done something in your heart to make you seek him. He has initiated that action. God, it says in this passage, is going to put these people in a place of terror, like they're going to be scared of stuff. And some of it's going to be unexplainable. Like they can't point to a reason and say, that's why I'm scared. They're just scared. There's, they're going to be in terror, but there's, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. This idea of they're scared of their own shadow. That's the idea. The idea of verse 5 is that God's judgment is going to come, and it's going to come swiftly, quickly. It's like, not that it's going to happen tomorrow, but once it happens, it's going to be fast. The door is going to shut really fast is the idea. Point number three, I want you to write this down. I want you to fear God's swift judgment. If you're a person who walks in the fear of the Lord, maybe you're, you're a person who believes in Jesus Christ, you're a real Christian. Um, if that's you, still it's helpful for us to think about the swiftness of God's judgment, the quickness in which it's going to come. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. God makes them fall fast. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The idea of these people who are in terror for what? I don't know. They're just afraid. Well, the real thing they should be afraid of is God's judgment. Some people think that Psalm 53, and this might be the case, was actually written about a situation that happened with a, with a foolish guy. David encountered a fool whose literal name was Fool. <laughs> His name was Nabal. You know this story? Um, Nabal. He was a um, pretty wealthy guy. This is at the time in which David was not yet king. He wasn't reigning yet. Saul was still alive. He was running from place to place, which is why it actually fits really well in Psalm 52 to Psalm 54. Maybe he, this is right after he dealt with this guy named Nabal. We don't know. I think it probably could be. Nabal, this is 1 Samuel 25, is that whole chapter is about this story. David needed supplies. He went from place to place. He needed help, just like he got help from the priests that we talked about earlier, he needed help. So he sends some messengers to ask for help from Nabal. And Nabal says, who are you? I'm not going to give you a single loaf of bread. Who are you, David? Get out of here. Get off my land. You're not staying on my land. So David was so upset about that. Because of course he knew who David was. But he didn't want to respect David. He didn't want it to cost him anything. He was a foolish guy, Nabal was. So David got so mad, he said, everybody put, I mean, put your, put your guns in the holster. We're going, we're going to go kill him, right? David was ready. He was fired up. He was angry. It says, while they were preparing to go to battle against this foolish guy, he was angry at a fool. While he was about to release that anger against this foolish guy, a lady comes from Nabal's house. It's Nabal's wife named Abigail. That's why some of you are named Abigail. You know Abigail because Abigail's a good person in the Bible. Here's what she does. She comes out. She's Nabal's wife, a foolish guy's wife. And she says, hey, my husband is named Nabal, and that means fool. And he is a fool, okay? He never should have done that. She brought all this food, all these supplies, and said, David, I'm so sorry. Please don't attack this guy. And by the way, don't put out your hand. Let God judge Nabal. God will take care of it. Here's what you need, okay? 
it was such a good thing that David is like, like praising her. Like, Abigail, thank you so much. That was, I was so mad. I shouldn't have been mad. I was going to do something wrong. I was actually going to sin because of what happened to me. Thank you. It's like Abigail saved David from sinning that day. She's the hero of the David, Nabal, Abigail stories. Abigail's the hero. And it says in the end of that chapter, Abigail went back home, told Nabal what she did. I said, Nabal was like so freaked out at what happened when he found out that she went, he didn't get angry. He wasn't mad. He was scared. So scared that he froze. It says 10 days later, God killed Nabal. How? We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says God did it. So like 10 days after this bad news, just something happened. Maybe his heart stopped. Maybe, I, I don't know. Just God killed him. Done. And afterwards, David was so happy that he did not sin. He was so happy that he did what was righteous and that there was a lady who was responsible for that, a lady who helped him, a lady who said, I want you to not sin. That lady, Abigail, who had no husband. And David ends up getting married to Abigail after that. It's kind of a love story in the end. But the idea is you got this guy who David really wants to go after, that he says, I'm not going to do that because Abigail helped him. What happens there is you have David expressing what happens here. God puts them in terror. God scatters their bones. He will put them to shame. I don't need to go attack them. The people who don't agree by God, I don't, I don't need to go attack them. God is going to judge them. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be scared. Psalm 73 says that God puts people who are wicked in slippery places. So Psalm 73 Verse 18 says, truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It's like God will take care of them. I saw a video of, um, I think it was a Dude Perfect video, where they had to climb up these uh, like stairs. It was like a slip and slide. Have you seen this video? I looked at, I, it showed up on our like suggested, right? They had like 70 million views or whatever. It was one of those. But it was one of those where, the guys have to like climb up this slip and slide, uphill, like this staircase. You got to look at it. It's crazy. Um, so they do it. And every time they get to the step, like some, one of the other guys like grab their ankle and they will just slip. It's just like 20 minutes of them just trying to go up and then slipping down, trying to go up and slipping down. It's actually kind of funny. Uh, but it reminds me of like this idea. God puts them in slippery places. People who do evil and think they're getting away with it, they think they're fine doing what they're doing. What they don't realize is they are on top of one of those slip and slides and all it takes is a moment and God will knock them down. Although that can be a comfort to people like David and maybe that can be a comfort to you. If you're one of those people that is being wronged by people, I mean, you might have people in your life who are doing really bad things to you. Just know what this text says. God has put those people in slippery places. They're going to fall, and God is going to take care of that justice. But can't just say that and expect that, oh, it's about someone else. Well, what about you? If you're a person who's continually said, I'm not going to respond to Jesus, I'm not going to become a Christian, well, then you're kind of in a slippery place too. Don't you see? I want you to turn to this passage, 2 Peter chapter 3. I want you to look at this. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at 10 verses here. It's in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, almost at the end of your Bibles. Verses 1 to 10, which talks about this very thing. There was a group of people who doubted God's judgment. They thought, nope, he's not going to do it. For, not, not for a while, at least. What they really doubted 
which is what many people in our world doubt, right? Like when we talk about God's judgment, when is God's judgment coming on the world, right? It's when Jesus returns. That's what the Bible teaches. Um, these people are having debates, theological debates. They're like, oh, I don't think Jesus is going to come back. Not really. I mean, did he really say that? Is that really what Jesus said? And they're having these debates. Peter writes them. This is Second uh, Peter chapter 3. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm reminding you of something you already know. So he's saying, hey, I'm repeating this stuff, but the reason I'm repeating it is because it's helpful for us to think about. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, right? What we have in our New Testament. He's saying, remember the Old Testament promises about this? Also remember what the apostles said about this. Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. It's like they're going to laugh at you. They're going to think you're stupid. If you really think you're not going to do the sinful stuff they do because you think Jesus is coming back, guess what they're going to say? You're an idiot. They're going to say, stupid, stupid, stupid. Like, that's the scoffer laughing at people who are doing what's right. They just follow their own sinful desires. While they say, and this is what these sinful people say. They say, where is the promise of his coming? Oh, you think... Oh, you think God's going to judge the world? Oh, well, where's that going to happen? I don't see that happening. I don't, I, see, I don't seem to see that. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Or you think Jesus is coming back? Guess what? 200 years ago, they thought he was going to come back too. And guess what? He didn't. And like 100 years ago, guess what? They thought he was going to come back. Guess what he didn't do? He didn't come back. This is the scoffers say this kind of stuff. They deliberately, verse 5, overlook this fact. That the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water, through, through water, by the word of God, right? Which is this picture of what we see in Genesis 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. This idea how God created the world. Water covered the face of the deep. And it says, verse 6, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What are we talking about? When was the world destroyed with water, right? The flood, right? Noah's flood, Genesis chapter 6. It's interesting, all the parallels to Genesis 6 in Psalm 53. Lots of parallels. God looks and he sees and they're corrupt. Oh, and God's also going to judge and also going to put them in slippery places, just like this. He says, it was deluged, flooded with water and it perished. What were the people thinking? Think this through. What were the people thinking when the flood happened? Do you remember what the Bible says? How many people joined Noah in the ark? Just his family. That's it. How many people were alive at that point? Thousands, millions, some estimate even billions because of their lifespan. A whole world could have been filled for all we know. We don't really know. It doesn't tell us. The point is, millions of people at least heard this because he built it over the course of like 100 years. It took him a long time. Um, but guess who joined? Nobody. They thought that the world was going to continue as it was forever. But God said, no, it's not going to. Look at verse number seven. It says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It's like, just like the world was prepping for this flood. It's like the world that we live on right now is prepping for a different kind of flood, not a flood of water, but a, a fiery flood, so to speak. Verse number eight, 
He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. So now he's talking to Christians. He says, I know these non-Christians, they'll say all this bad stuff, but okay, we're Christians, okay? Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, people who are loved by God, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. So in the way that God views time, God does not sit through time in a temporary way and experience it in the same way we do. It's like to God, one day in a thousand years, what's the difference? Right? He's outside of time. He's not sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting. It's all planned out. It's the idea here. It's outside of time. So the Lord is patient. He says he's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Some people think he's slow. But what is he? He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Do thieves tell you they're coming beforehand? No, they just show up, right? They come quickly. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then what will happen? The heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Probably talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. It's like when God judges this world and redoes it, it's like he'll change it all. It'll be dissolved. And the earth and the works that are on it, done on it, will be exposed. That same concept. It's like all of these biblical principles. What's the idea? Like one day God will expose it all in judgment. What does that mean? He's going to one day say, this was right, this was wrong. Just like he clearly said in his word. Verse number 11. Now he talks to Christians again. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, if everything that you care about, all your video games, all your sports, all your accolades, all your music, all your school, all your popularity, if all that is going to be dissolved one day and not matter so much, what sort of people ought you to be? What should you be like if all the stuff that you care about, all the stuff on your Amazon wish list, all the stuff that you want, it, it will all be dissolved. How should you live differently? And he says, here's how we should live, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and even hastening the day. It's like we're saying, Jesus, make this day happen sooner. Waiting for and hastening the day, the coming, the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth on which the righteous, righteousness dwells. It's like we're going to go to a new world, and when we go to a new world, it's going to be a real new world. It's going to be a good new world, a world without death, sin, sickness. When God looks over, so to speak, and he sees mankind, he doesn't see a group of corrupt people. He sees righteous people always acting in righteousness towards one another, perfectly loving their neighbor as themselves, perfectly modeling what Jesus did. He, that's the world he's going to see because that's the world he's going to make. But who's going to be there? Point number four, I want you to ask God to save you from your sin. That's what the end of the psalm talks about. Oh, that salvation would come from Zion. We want God to come and save. Interesting thing about this passage is it's like God seeks people. Oh, but no one seeks God, right? God's looking, but nobody's looking back. Jesus said this as well. John chapter four, verse 23 Jesus was talking to this lady who was concerned about, okay, where should we do the worship? Should we do it on that mountain or that mountain? And Jesus is like, look, this is all going to be different in a minute. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So if you're a person who says, I want to be right with God. I want to know him. I want to be on his team. Guess what? If you're wanting that and you're going to turn from your sin and you do repent, guess what? 
What does this passage say? It says the Father is seeking such people. God is doing things to draw you to himself. How do we come to God? Can we come to God as a sinner? Well, we can't come to God like a corrupt person like these people were, right? We can't hang out with God. It's too holy for us. We need to come through a perfect person who's going to stand in our place, who's going to be judged in our place, Jesus. Romans 10 talks about that. It says, Romans 10 verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you agree, Jesus is the Lord. He's the king. And believe in your heart. Trust him with all your heart that God raised him from the dead. You believe everything that happened there. You trust in him. It says you will be saved if you trust in Jesus. You ask and trust. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, whether you grew up in the church or you didn't grow up in the church. There's no distinction from the WANA graduate and the person who's never memorized a Bible verse. There's no distinction. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call upon him. Not on all who earn it, all who try really hard, all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise. If you ask God and trust God with all your heart, God does not turn people away. He just doesn't do it. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. I think it's impressive when we think about what God has done to seek us. It's actually the mission statement in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's like God who is the one who's seeking. When he says we all should have been seeking God, the reality is Jesus says, I'm going to come seek you instead because you weren't seeking me. There's a famous uh, ship that was found a couple weeks ago. It's called the Endurance. I don't know if you ever heard the story. It was a ship that sunk in Antarctica. It was one of those um, voyages in the early 1900s where they tried to cross over Antarctica. This guy named Ernest Shackleton was famous, and he was an explorer. And basically what happened to this ship was uh, he brought all these people, all these men, actually two different ships that were supposed to meet, and then they were going to kind of meet in the middle. But his ship, they got caught in the ice, and they couldn't move it for like six months. So there's all these weird pictures, if you look it up, the endurance, where this boat is like in the middle of this ice field and there's ice everywhere and they're you know playing games and playing soccer and you know they're just hanging out but what happened was after a number of months the ship took on too much water and because of the way that the ice moved and all you know they're moving in a current right so it was always getting moved and the ship sank impressively though all the men survived so they all were off the ship because they weren't really living on the ship at that point they had all these dogs and supplies and all these things and they survived for months and months and then finally the leader of the group Ernest Shackleton he said let me get five guys from the team including myself not including himself so six people went there were uh, 28 people on that ship total six of the 28 so now we got 22 and six 22 stayed behind where the where they were six went off to find rescue what happened was they didn't have a boat. They had lifeboats, though. So they took one of the lifeboats. They built it up. They kind of rigged it all up and really cool. It's like this little lifeboat-sized thing with six of them. And they went off, and they tried to sail 800 miles in some of the worst ocean that there possibly is at the bottom, near down, down near Antarctica, right? It was 
cold. It was windy. They had frostbite. They actually had to throw their sleeping bags overboard because it was too much weight. They were constantly trying to make it not weigh so much. So they had to scrape the ice off their hands. They had to scrape the ice off the boat so that they would not sink. It's crazy. They go like this for days and days and days, and they finally find this island. And then they get to shore, and their boat is totally destroyed. It's the island they wanted to get to, which was super hard to get to. But they landed on the wrong side. So they had to, with these six guys, they had to trek over this island, having to climb over this mountain of ice. And they come to the other side, and there's like barely anybody left there. And they're these native people, and they, they help them out. And then they finally go to this other island, and they get a boat. And then the Chileans show up. Um, and then there's like this steamboat. And then they take the steamboat, and they go back to the 22 people, and boom, saved. Every single person who went on that trip, survived. Like, beyond all odds. This guy, Ernest Shackleton, he led this search and rescue mission at his own expense. He didn't say, hey, the, the six best of you go. He went himself. He led the team. He made it happen. And he came back and he saved all of his people. When we talk about how God seeks us, it was not at no cost. How God sought us to save us was through Jesus and his perfect life, his sacrificial life, his rescue mission, the thing that was hard for 30 plus years, leaving heaven's glory, living a life as a first century carpenter, always choosing what's right, never choosing to do what's sinful, always rejecting temptation. And it says he did all that to save us. And now here's, here's the response for us. The rescue has come. Are you going to accept his salvation that he brings? Are you going to jump on the boat? Are you going to say, yeah, I, you've done it all. You've saved me. You have gone back and forth. I've just been here stuck. I was going to die unless you came to save me. But yes, you've come to save me. Or are you going to turn your nose about it? That's really all that's left for us to decide. That's why the only response is to ask God to save you from your sin. It's not, okay, now you try to earn your way out. You can't. You're stuck in a bunch of ice, and you got 800 miles to go, and you can't do it, and you don't have a boat. You're just, you're stuck, just like I'm stuck. We have to call on Jesus, but he has done what's necessary to save us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Don't reject him. Don't turn him down by choosing your sin instead. That just wouldn't make sense. Let's pray. God, help us see this. Pray that we would be more aware of our sinfulness, that we wouldn't deny it or diminish it or act like it's not there. Just pray that we'd be honest about that, but we'd also be excited and fired up about what you did to save us. You're our hero. You're our savior. You're our Lord. You've done what's necessary to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we ask you and trust you to forgive us, and we just pray that students tonight who've never become Christians, who've never repented of their sin, would count the cost, and they would consider this, and that you would use this psalm, Psalm 53, to lead some of them to salvation in Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.